this matters. This time together matters. It's important. It's not just important because of a Bible command, Hebrews 10, 25, to not forsake the assembly, or Matthew 6, 33, to seek first the kingdom of God. It matters because of what Hebrews 10, 25b says. Exhorting one another and so much the more you see the day approaching. I've heard people stand and pray in churches growing up that God, we pray their only purpose to be here today is to worship and honor you. That's a hefty prayer and a mighty good one. But it falls short of the Bible admonition. That is that we are to encourage each other when we're together. This matters. Not because there are many of you here who do not believe in the Lord. I doubt that anyone wandered into a church building on a Friday night who doesn't believe in the Lord already. This matters because, because the church matters. The church is bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is a body. It's a, a living thing. Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, both call it the body of Christ. It's alive, it's to be alive, quick, that the Bible says, it's alive. Alert, it's to be energetic, it's to be full of movement and activity. Gavin McGovern, who wrote several books on church growth, said that a church that does not have activity, does not move around, is not involved in its community and the things that are going on in its, in its world, that it has no right to exist. The church exists for the purpose of its saving souls. We serve the very purpose the Lord served. Luke chapter 10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. That's why we're here. This matters. The preaching of the Word of God matters. Paul write about it in Romans chapter 5 and 6. And in that lengthy discourse, he'll talk about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings. Preaching of the word of God matters. Thanks, Daryl, for leading that song. I love to tell this story. I've told my wife that song is to be sung at my funeral. Hopefully no time soon. But I'm ready to meet the Lord if it is soon. The church is to be alive. It's to make an impact in, with the stamp that it puts on this earth. The church matters. It, it, it matters because it is God's plan through which to change this world. I see Christians sometimes that seem to think it appears from what they post and write the world will be changed through politics. The world's not going to be changed through politics. The world will be changed through, uh, through uh, money. Money's not going to change this world. The world will be changed through military might. Military might will not change this world. The thing that will impact this world more than anything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church matters. It's to be alive. I was visiting Brother Willard Collins, who was president of Lipscomb University for a number of years, and he said that Lipscomb did not deserve to exist if she did not serve the church. That there is no vehicle through which God intended his word to get into the, into the world apart from the church, the local church, he said. It matters. He's right. 
I watched my dad when I was a young child. The passion and love he had for the local church. He did a lot of stuff in a lot of places, but he loved the local church. Chuck's already mentioned he moved to Birmingham in 1966. He moved here in September. Birmingham was a mist of what Martin Luther King said, the most racially divided city in America, and he brought his three young sons and his nine-month pregnant wife. Right, Gina Leroy, nine months pregnant. September the 1st, we moved to Birmingham, and September the 22nd, my sister was born. He moved his young family here where he knew there was conflict and difficulty and it would not be as easy as the city he had lived in for so many years. But he thought he could reach more people with the gospel and infect more people through the local church. Church matters. But it doesn't matter because it mattered to Willard Collins or to my dad. It matters because it mattered to Christ. Peter writes that we are not redeemed with fleshly things, silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Paul will talk to the Ephesian elders on the little island of Miletus and he'll talk about how that we've been bought with the blood of Christ. Church matters because the price paid for it was the most expensive ransom that's ever been imagined. The precious blood of God. God blood paid for your soul. The church matters. So before we're done, you're going to think I'm very weird. I'm going to let you know that up front, okay? I'm different and not, not in all good ways. And some of you probably won't like some of the ways I'm different after the next three days. My goal is to offend everybody in this building before we're done, okay? So just get ready. Your time's coming. If you've not been offended yet, I'll get to you in time, okay? I'm not serious. It's not my goal to offend you. If I do, come and talk to me about it. But I'm going to say some things, hopefully, that will make an impact on your life. I'm going to tell you some stories at times. You see, the church should be alive. <clears throat> I was preaching in Nashville at Granny White. I'd not been there very long when I got a phone call from a good friend that lived in Hamilton, and he said, my aunt died. The funeral's going to be in Tupelo, Mississippi on Wednesday. Will you come and preach the funeral? I said, I would be honored to. The church of Hamilton had not yet hired a preacher, so it wasn't uncommon for me to go back, so I went back. I was going to go back. Tuesday morning, I got a phone call. The secretary of the church at Hamilton, she said, I hear you're going to be in town. Would you be willing to preach another funeral while you're here? I said, I'll be happy to if I can make it happen. The funeral in Tupelo is at 10 a.m. The funeral in Hamilton was 1 p.m. She said I should make it. I said, I probably will. I called Randy Jackson, who owned the local funeral home, and I said, Randy, I'll probably be late, but uh, get ready. You know, I'll, I'll come wheeling in. I'll do my best to get there. But if I'm late, you go ahead and start the singer's you know, when I get there, they'll already be singing, and if they need to sing an extra song or two, that's fine, but I was sure enough was just a couple of minutes late. They were already singing. I rushed into the church building, parked my car illegally, rushed into the church building. Randy handed me the clergy card, that card that has information about the person that's died. And I stood up to preach the funeral. The first time I had seen any of the family or anybody there, an elderly lady had died. And they're sitting when I stood up. On the third row back to my right was a woman whose funeral I thought I was preaching. <laughs> what do you do at a moment like that? Nashville, Tennessee, Woodline Funeral, uh, Woodline Cemetery, is where a lot of the country music stars are buried, but more important to me, a lot of 
gospel preachers that I love are buried there. When I preached at Granny White, I'd often do funerals at the Woodline, at the Woodline Funeral Home in the cemetery there. This is told to me to be a true story. It may or may not be, but it's told to me to be a true story. I do remember when they remodeled the funeral home. They did a complete remodel of it. It had gotten old and in disrepair, and so they went in and they painted over the paneling that they had, and they, they took up the carpet and put down a nice wood floor. They, they redid the lighting. They added a new sound system. They took out the pews and put chairs in. They, they, they put a video screen in. I'm not sure why you need a video screen at a funeral, but they put a video screen in. They did all those acrements that made it much nicer, much more comfortable. They put in a five-disc CD player. And they had their first funeral. A lady died. The family came and said our grandmother's favorite song was Somewhere Over the Rainbow. We'd like for it to be played at the funeral. They played the song at the funeral. Put the CD in, played the song. Two days later, they had another funeral. The family came at the last minute and said, we've got a problem the granddaughter was going to sing a song for grandmom and last night she tried to do it and couldn't do it and she's afraid she can't do it and doesn't want to be embarrassed. We recorded her, could you play the song? They said, we'd be happy to. Man went back, put the, thought there was a disc in disc one, put the disc in disc two. Cued it up, it came time for the funeral. A different man was running the sound system. He went back there and looked, there was a disc in disc one. And so he got ready to play the song on this one. You may not be aware, but the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow is from the movie The Wizard of Oz. It is the second song on that CD. The first song which he played was Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. <laughs> I don't know what you do. You upgrade in your, your casket? I'm not sure. I got to be very close friends with the man who took care of our building at Granny White. Albert was his name. Albert was a good man. Albert and I became good friends. We'd eat lunch together fairly often and we hung out together. And one day I got a phone call. Albert's dad had died. Well, I wanted to do the funeral. Albert's a black man, dear friend. If that offends you that he's black, I'm sorry. He knows he was. He was a good man, good friend. Loved him so much. But one thing I've learned about black funerals, I've done several of them through the years, is they're not like white funerals. The biggest thing I know about them is they usually it's about a month after the person died before you have the funeral. I don't know why that is. But when they called and told me when the funeral was, it was going to be on a Saturday, and that was the worst news of my day. I hate to have funerals on a Saturday because that means I've got to get dressed up. And if I'm not offensive, if I'm offensive, I do not mean to be, but the worst thing, the worst thing about it being on a Saturday, it was a black funeral. I knew two things. One, it lasted all day, and two, I had to dress sharp. So I dressed sharp, black suit, white shirt, black collar, little tie bar across the collar, cuffs. I was ready. I got there. The building was a building that barely would seat 100 people. It was a very small building in East Nashville. I had to park three blocks away from the church building. It was a hot July day in Nashville. I started walking toward the church building there in East Nashville, and this rather large gentleman came up to me and said, we are so glad you're here. I was somewhat taken aback, but I said, thank you, I'm glad to be here. He said, come with me. He was a large man, I went with him. We'd not walked half a block when another man came up and said, we are so glad you're here. I said, well, thank you, I'm honored to be here, I'm glad to be here. 
I'm a little confused at this point. I didn't tell them that, but I thought, I don't know how these people know me, but that's all right. We got a little close to the church building, about a block away, and another man walked up, and the guy said, hey, he's here. And I said, oh, I said yeah, I'm here. At this point, my ego had taken over. I'd done some television work in Nashville, and I thought they recognized, <clears throat> they recognized me. I'm important. I kept walking toward the church building. We got outside the building. There was mounds of people outside the building. It overflowed. But the big guy, the guy with him, took me inside. I thought, this is mighty nice. I'm going to get to go inside. I'm going to get to see Albert. That's why I came, really, was to see Albert. They walked me down to the very front, bypassed the line of people waiting to see the casket, waiting to see the body, waiting to see Albert, and took me all the way to the front. And by this time, I'm feeling very, very important. I said, all right, it's good to be here. They turned around and introduced me to the man in charge of the funeral, the funeral home director, and said, George, the limousine driver has arrived. <laughs> I tell those three stories, one because they're kind of fun stories, but primarily because in thinking about death, there are some funny stories, but there's nothing funny when it comes to the death of the church. The Lord meant for it to be alive, for it to be vibrant, for it to make an impact in the community where it was. And tonight as we investigate a number of things, we're going to talk about the significance of the church in the local community. And I know you have an interest here. I know a Friday night crowd at a gospel meeting would not be here if you did not have an interest in the local church. If you'll indulge me, I want to say thank you to Chuck for the very kind introduction and to Brother Bill for his kind introduction. That means an awful lot to me. When you speak a lot, you're introduced a lot, and you never know what people are going to say. I was preaching on a Wednesday night at a church just outside of Nashville in Middle Tennessee. I got in there early, like I like to get places early. I got here tonight, and there wasn't anyone in the building. The building was unlocked. I started to take a couple of your computers, but I didn't. But I got here early. I got there early that night, and there was nobody in the building. My wife was with me. Melanie was with me, that, with me that night. I had my Bible, a stack of outlines. I had a suit on. I was ready to preach on a Wednesday night. The local preacher was going to be gone that night, so someone else had introduced me, and so I wandered around waiting for somebody to come in. After several minutes, a few people started wandering in. Older men, older women started trickling in. The older women went and sat in the auditorium. The older men went in the foyer and started talking. Nobody spoke to me. It wasn't like here tonight when you, so many of you were so gracious and kind and introduced yourselves. I wandered around the lobby. Mel and I read every mission report on every bulletin board they had. And finally, this rather short man came up and he said, Are you the speaker? I thought I was being humorous. I said, Well, I thought I was going to be the speaker, but he didn't get the joke. Just like you didn't. He said, I'm introducing you. He didn't tell me his name or anything else. He stood up to introduce me. He stood behind their little podium they had. It was rather short. And he looked up at the audience and looked down at his notes. He looked at the audience and he said, I'm to introduce the speaker tonight. He looked down at the notes again. I sent my bio to the preacher to ask me to do that so he could share it with this guy. He looked down at the notes a third time and he said, but you, know, you folks know that I don't like doing this. Oh, great, this is nice. He looked at his notes again, he looked up and he said, Brother Jerkins, come speak to us. 
When you go speak places, you never know how you're going to be introduced. I was preaching in Ohio a number of years ago in a gospel meeting. It was Tuesday night. It was in Canton, Ohio. I don't know if you've ever been to Canton, Ohio, but if you've been to Canton, there's only one reason you go to Canton, right? Pro Football Hall of Fame, correct. So I went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame that, that Tuesday afternoon. After I visited there for a while and saw all I wanted to see, I realized time was getting away. I got in a traffic jam on my way back, and it is not true what they say. They will start the service without the preacher. I got there, and they'd already started. It was a preacher's dream. The building was full. I finally found a seat by a little old lady sitting near the back. I slid in beside her and said, do you mind if I sit here? And she said, I'm honored. I said, thank you. We sang for a while and prayed for a while, and I stood up to preach. After I preached, people were walking out and telling me all those lies that people tell preachers after you preach. Good lesson. Thank you. It meant a lot to me. All those little things, you know, that people say. And finally, this lady was standing over the side. She waited and waited. And finally, after a good little while, she walked up to me after almost everyone had left. And she said, I want to thank you for sitting by me tonight. I've been a widow for over 30 years. I sit by myself every service. I'm honored tonight. The preacher sat beside me. I didn't have the heart to tell her. It was quite by accident, but that was nice. So I started developing the habit of trying to sit with someone who's sitting by themselves when I go places to preach. I was preaching in Paducah, Kentucky. Brother Jay Lockhart was introducing me. Brother Jay is one of those golden-tongued individuals that everything he says seems to be beautiful and lovely. And Brother Jay introduced me. He was pouring on thick. I couldn't find anybody to sit with that night. Finally, there were three ladies sitting what would be my left tonight near the front. I said, can I sit with you? And they said, no problem. I sat with them. Brother Jay got up and introduced me and went on and on and on and on. I was sitting there listening to his lovely introduction of me, Brother Chuck, and I was thinking, I sure wish Melanie was here to hear how good I am. <laughs> After he poured it on about as thick as you could pour it on, the lady that was sitting the furthest away from me the, the, of the three ladies, that was the oldest of the ladies, leaned forward, and in a voice that only an older lady can use, said to me, loud enough for everyone in the building to hear, well, after all that, you better be good. You never know what you're going to get when introduced. It is an honor to be with you and to be in Birmingham, Alabama. I love this city. This is the city of my growing up, and it means much to me. I'm thankful that not only are some of the people I already mentioned here, but uh, Brother Gene and uh, Brother Leroy and Sister Jean Owens are here. Brother Leroy is an elder at Woodline when I was growing up, and Sister Jean was Dad's secretary as far back as I can remember, and they meant an awful lot to our family, mean a lot to our family. Their daughter Kay's here as well. I guess that's probably why they're here. I dated their daughter one time. They don't remember it because we were not old enough to date, but I had a crush on her. And I made a vow that if I ever had a daughter, I'd name her Jill. That's their older daughter's name. I only had sons, so that didn't work out. My wife might have been happy with that either if it happened. <laughs> it is an honor to be here. I've been preaching meetings now for 35 years. The first meeting I preached was in 1983 at the Walnut Grove Church in Mississippi. And what I've learned about meetings is that there are certain forms and styles that we are comfortable with, and if they take that form and style, we like it. That's good preaching. And so when I first started preaching meetings, I called every preacher I knew that had ever preached a sermon that I remembered, and I said, can I use your sermon? And I started using their sermons. I still do that. I still use some of those sermons. They're some of my favorites. But it dawned on me about three years ago that what I was seeing in most churches was the people who the sermons were designed to influence were not there. 
and while the sermons were useful in building the faith and, and reminders of what we believed to those that were assembled, the very people who needed the sermons weren't there, and the people who were there needed something that they weren't getting. And so I made a determined decision that I was going to either talk real seriously about churches I went to preach with, about purpose and design of their meetings. Why are you having one? Can we have some lost people there to talk to? Or I was going to talk to the church. And so what Chuck has asked us to do primarily in this series is talk to the church. And tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the faith of the church, if you do not mind. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at, examining some of what the faith of the church is supposed to be and what that whole concept means. To be very transparent and honest, I fear that this is going not to go as well as I would like for it to. I fear that often when I stand up in front of people and talk, I fear that I'm not going to give you what you expect and that maybe I'll disappoint some of you. And I want to assure you that I can preach a good gospel sermon, a good gospel meeting. But again, the problem is that the people who need it most aren't here oftentimes, and the people who most want me to preach those type of sermons sometimes need to hear something that they, that they don't want to hear. And I'm in a very odd place when I stand up in front of people and talk about this sort of thing. You see, I would not want to do anything to harm the church of our Lord at Hoover because I love the church too much to harm. But if I don't say some things to you that in some way affect you, there's no real reason for me to be here. So I hope in our talking together for the next little while that I will challenge you some. I hope that these next 44 hours will be useful for this local church to get you talking about some things and blessing you. I'm not going to preach 44 hours. Some of you get nervous. I already got a baby crying when you talk about that. Not only are the people that most often need to hear first principles, good, old-fashioned, gospel-meeting sermons not here, you didn't invite those people for the most part. And I'm not being ugly about that. I don't really blame you. You don't know me. I don't know you that well, and you're not sure if you'd want to invite a guy to hear a guy that you don't know. Up front, I want to be very clear to you that I'm not an expert, that as I've already said, I love the church, that the church matters, and that I want to be better at what I do, so feel free to instruct me on how I can do that. But I've been asked to talk to you about some things that will lead to a church being healthy and attractive and in, make an impact uh, to, in, in the community that it's in. Our good brother Franklin Camp used to talk about old truths and new robes. He wrote a book, two sermon book, outline books with that title, Old Truths and New Robes and Old Truths and New Robes. Number two, my favorite sermon in that series of lessons is to beautify the gospel, beautifying the gospel. And part of what we have a mission of doing as members of the church is to make the gospel more beautiful by the lives that we live. I want to be very clear to you. I love the church, and I want you to know the church is not going to die. It is not going to go away. There are some voices of woe and concern in our, in our fellowship. There are some in this world. There are some in the larger religious community that say the church no longer has an impact, that it no longer has an influence, that it is no longer what it needs to be in the sense that it will eventually die. I read a lengthy report not long ago that said the North American church is going to die. I want to tell you very clearly, if somebody comes along and tries to tell you the church is going to die, you can go ahead and mark him as a false teacher. The church of the Lord is not going to die. We have the Lord's stamp on that fact. 
The gates of hell will not prevail against it, Jesus said, when he announced the forthcoming of the church. And typically that false teacher wants to sell you something. So be aware of that. Every organism, every organization must constantly re-examine its reason for existence. Why it does business, so to speak. It do, if it doesn't, it will wake up one morning engaged in, uh, in frantic activity that has little to do with its purpose. Now you might recognize those words. There's some words that your preacher Chuck wrote two weeks ago in your church bulletin. God shapes his people, he went on to say, and he works powerfully among those who are interested in submitting to his leadership. Jesus was once asked the question that we're asking this year, what's most important? Why are we here? How, or was once asked, why, or why are we here? How do we glorify God? The answer is simple. Love God, love people. Jesus describes his church as a field, as a kingdom, with a powerful and compassionate king, as a wedding party, as a treasure. The text will further describe the church as a bride, as, a glor as glorious, as pure, as holy, as a body, a living organism. Acts chapter 2, the church is just days old. In fact, it's not even a chapter old in your Bible. When the report, the first report card from the community comes back to the church, and the report card has a note on it. It has an A on it and it has a note on it. And the note on that grade says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. We have marching orders. That is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Acts chapter 8, the church is not very old till it appears they're going to be stuck in Jerusalem. That was not God's intent. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is very clear that the church was to begin in Jerusalem and go to Samaria and Judea and then to the uttermost part of the earth. That's God's design for the church. So Acts chapter 8, persecution comes. And those who are persecuted, the text will tell us, go everywhere spreading the word. Maybe God used a difficult day to get them to realize what they should be doing. And when you get to Acts chapter 20 and verse 20, the text will tell us that daily from house to house, they did not cease to preach and teach Jesus Christ. How do we recreate that? How do we live out our faith in our community? And so for just a few minutes this evening, I want to talk to you about this beautiful thing called faith. Because you see, faith, are you listening? Faith is a noun. Judah write about the faith about earnestly contending for the faith. Paul wrote about the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It's a noun. It's a body of beliefs, a doctrine, a thing, an item, something you can put your arms around, something you can believe in, something you can trust in. It exists for us to grow in. Peter writes that we are to add to our faith. You see, it's a thing. It's a noun. It exists. It's reality. But not only is faith a set of beliefs, a body of information. Faith is a noun. Are you listening? Faith is a noun that when you add water, it becomes a verb. Because when you're baptized into Christ, faith goes from noun, becomes less nounish, excuse me, English teachers, and more verbish. It becomes more of a verb. See, faith is not just a noun. It's not just this body of doctrine and beliefs. But James would say, 
How do I see faith? How do I know that faith exists? He says you see faith in works. You see, faith is to be lived out. It's become a part of our fiber, part of our being, a part of who we are. And I know nothing more passionate in our lives than faith that is lived out. The question then is, do we have faith? James would say, show me your faith. Your faith is shown by your works and by your actions. And so my simple question to you tonight, for you to begin to ponder for you to think about for a little while tonight, for you to begin to roll around in your brain and hopefully kind of squat upon and lean upon and lean into is this. How are you using your faith in your world? How is your faith impacting your community, your subdivision, your HOA? How is your faith impacting where you work? How is your faith impacting where you exercise? How is your faith impacting the little league where your kids play or the high school where your kids attend? How's your faith affecting your classmates if you're in school? How's your faith affecting your family? Is your faith being lived out? Do you have faith? And the question I really want to ask tonight is, do you have faith? Do you have faith? Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 will say that faith is a substance. It's a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I don't know if you've ever looked closely at Hebrews 11 and verse 1, but it is a, if you don't mind me saying, and I don't say this with any sacrilege at all, it is a rather odd verse. Because I don't know of a substance of things hoped for. I don't know of an evidence of things not seen. Evidence involves things that are seen. If you went to a court of law and they said, give us some evidence, you'd say, well, it's right over there, but you can't see it. They'd say that's no evidence at all. What is the writer, whoever it is, of the book of Hebrews saying to us? He's saying faith is something that is very real. But the only way to put your hands on it is to live it out. And then because he then talks to us about individuals, about Abel and Moses and Noah, about Jephthah and Gideon, about people throughout the ages who have lived their lives for the Lord. So the question of questions tonight is, what are you doing in your life? What are you attempting in your life that is evidence that you have faith? What is there that you're doing in your life that you're trying to do in your life that you would not do in your life if you did not have faith? I'm not going to tell you their name. I love and respect elders and elderships. I was visiting with the eldership about five or six years ago. It was a Wednesday night. I'd been preaching that night. I was meeting with the elders afterward. It was a good meeting. They said, we're needing some advice. We need to build a new building. I said, that's exciting. They said, uh, we've got a problem. We don't have the money to build the building. And I said, well, I don't know how big a problem that is. We're building a building right now. It's $3.1 million. Our building note's going to be $24,000 a month, and our weekly contribution is $4,000 a month. Now, I don't know if let that sink in. We're going to get kind of hungry at my house. <laughs> they said, we've got a problem. We don't know how to do this. They said, we've got $3 million in the bank. Our property's worth $2 million. 
And the building we're going to build is going to cost $4 million and we just don't see how we can do it. And I said to them what I want to say to you tonight. If there's something for God that you cannot see what it is and how you can do it, that is probably the very thing you need to be attempting for God. If all you're doing is what you can see, then you have no faith at all. I just don't see how I can give that. I just don't see how I can attempt that. I just don't see how I can accomplish that. I just don't see how I can make that happen. If it's a matter of God, then you're probably, very possibly, I might even say certainly, needing to do the very thing you're considering to do in faith. Or I question whether you have faith at all. Is there anything you're attempting in your life tonight to do that you would not attempt to do if you did not have faith? Faith involves us reaching beyond ourselves. Reaching beyond what we can see, what we can put our hands on, what is tangible, what we can say, I can do this without, with complete certainty. In fact, I can almost hear this in my head. I can do it even without God. What a sad commentary if we ever try to do that in our lives. So my challenge to you tonight is to be a person of purpose. To do faith stuff. To allow your influence in your sphere, in your little world, to be seen. To allow your faith to be lived out congregationally. If you don't mind me being a little practical for just a minute. What is there that this church can do to impact this area? What great big thing or great little thing you could do that can make a difference around here? You see, the Lord did not call us to keep house. This is not a glorified picnic or a sanctified hayride. The Lord called us to do great things for Him. He called us to do things more than we would do or could do without Him. When I was living in Hamilton, we had a plant next to us, NTN Bauer was its name. I was driving down 43 one day, and the radio port came on WERH, the local radio station. I'd been in Hamilton for about two years, and I, to be very honest, was pretty miserable. I'd followed a preacher that had been for, there for 17 years, and it was rather difficult to follow this good man. I listened to the report, and the reporter came on, and he said, we've done a lengthy study. N.T.M. Bauer commissioned the study. And the study we've done said that it's difficult for people in North Alabama, Northwest Alabama, to accept outsiders. I thought, you didn't need to spend millions of dollars to find that study. I already knew it. And I determined that I would, if I was going to be allowed to do it, I would do everything I could to become an insider in that community. Because that was how you influenced people there. You got in their lives. I moved to Nashville. And right next door to the Granny White Church building was a university. And every year, 600 new students would come to that university. And talking to the elders shortly after I moved there, I said, what are we doing to reach these students? Many of them aren't Christian. Most of them do not come from Christian homes, Christian homes. What do we do to reach this community? They said, well, we've got a sign. They know we're here. And we began to try to reinvent that and reinvestigate that. Really, that's how we're going to do it? 
put a sign up and hope they'll wander in. That's not how you reach people. We moved to Spring Hill 12 years ago. We learned that city was a city that loves families and young families. So while in Nashville we tried to reach college students in Spring Hill, obviously we tried to reach everyone, but in Spring Hill we tried to reach young families. And I tell you that to say, what can you investigate about Hoover in this area? That you can begin to think, how can we reach? Who is the demographic? Who are the people? What, is, what drives this area? What can we do to reach the people in this area to make an impact in their lives? And there are things you can do. There are things this church can do that nobody else can do. And if this community in this area is ever going to be saved, it will be because God's people reach out to them and share the gospel with them. So my challenge to you tonight is, what are you doing with your faith? You know, gospel meetings are a neat thing. One of the things I've learned about them through the years is why every once in a while there's somebody that hears the gospel for the first time and obeys it. And sometimes someone's life is moved and they make a decision, I'm going to become a Christian. For the most part, most meetings nowadays, people there know what to do. But my question tonight about that is, if you're not a Christian, what in the world would keep you from being a Christian tonight? What would keep you from making the decision, I'm ready to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of my sins? You don't need a preacher to tell you that. The Bible's already said it. You don't need a meeting to do it. You don't need an invitation song for it to happen. You need to make people aware, I want to be a child of God's. When a person obeys the gospel, when they're baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, believing in Jesus, turning away from the things that's kept them back from God, sin hadn't helped your life any at all, confessing their love for the Lord, that they believe He is the Son of God. Well, the great news is, whether you've sat in an audience for years and years and people wonder why, haven't they obeyed the gospel or whether you're the first, per, first time you've ever heard anything about Christ is tonight. You can become a Christian this very night. That is the best news of this day. So if you're not a Christian, don't let anybody or anything keep you from it. Tonight, obey the Lord. Will you come while we stand to sing?